0: It's commonly said that a person makes their own luck. I'm not exactly too sure about that. <laughs> Board the Titanic during its maiden voyage, I'd have to say you'd be considered pretty unlucky to be in that position. But for Violet Jessup, an ocean liner stewardess, this would only be one of many tragedies to plague her career. Violet Jessup was plagued by misfortune even since she was young. She was the first of nine children in her family. Three of her siblings died from disease and she herself contracted tuberculosis and was told by doctors that she would probably meet the same fate as her three unfortunate siblings. Luckily, she was a survivor and overcame the sickness. When her father died, she moved to Great Britain to attend school, but eventually stopped attending when her mother fell ill. She took a job as a steward with the Royal Mail Line, unaware how much more misfortune awaited her in her new career. In 1911, Violet took a position on one of the world's largest ships. It was called the Olympic. A sister ship to the Titanic and the Britannic, the RMS Olympic was the lead ship of Olympic-class liners for White Star Line, a prominent British shipping company. On September 20th of 1911, the Olympic collided with the HMS Hawk, a protected cruiser, causing substantial damage to the Hawk and crippling the Olympic. Thankfully, the Olympic, with Violet aboard, was able to struggle its way back to port. But that was only the beginning of Violet's oceanic accidents. April 10th of 1912, Violet Jessup boarded a famous ship to work as a stewardess, the RMS Titanic. Four days later, it struck an iceberg. Over 1,500 people died there in the icy cold waters. She was ordered up on deck to aid the non-English speaking passengers on emergency protocol as a number of them weren't following directions. Eventually ordered into a lifeboat, she was handed a baby by one of the officers on the ship. She was rescued the following morning and while on the new ship, a woman snatched the baby out of her arms and ran away without a word. By this time, most people would be a bit wary of stepping foot on another ocean liner, however, Violet wasn't deterred during world war one violet jessup served upon another ship the rms britannic it served as a medical ship and should have been safer from attack regardless of this the ship struck a mine and due to the fact that all the portholes were open for ventilation the ship sunk rapidly violet boarded a lifeboat until she realized that it was quickly being sucked underwater and into the britannic's propellers She jumped from the boat, but was sucked underwater anyway, smashing her head on the keel of the ship. She surfaced and was rescued, and had survived yet another ocean tragedy. She was so familiar with this type of disaster at the time, she had even taken extra time to grab her toothbrush before she evacuated the ship, claiming that not having one after the Titanic sunk made the experience all that much worse. Years after Violet had retired, she received a mysterious phone call. The person on the other line asked her if she had rescued a baby aboard the Titanic. She said she had, and the person said, I am that baby, before they hung up and never made contact again. Violet Jessup died in 1971 due to congestive heart failure at the age of 84. Atomic bombs, frightening weapons of mass destruction that can level buildings within the blink of an eye. Even miles away, you still aren't safe from their blast. Tsutomu Yamaguchi was on a three-month business trip in Hiroshima, Japan during World War II. He worked for Mitsubishi Heavy Industries based out of Tokyo. He despised the war and believed that Japan should have never initiated any kind of attack. The war was beating down Japanese industries, and at one point, Yamaguchi considered taking his own life and the lives of his family through overdoses of sleeping pills to avoid living under such terrible conditions. But Yamaguchi continued his work. On August 6th, 1945, Yamaguchi was preparing to leave the city. Unfortunately, Yamaguchi realized on his way to the station that he had forgotten a stamp, which allowed him to travel at his workplace. So he had to go back and get it. On his way off a tram, shortly before making his way to depart, He looked up and noticed a plane in the sky. The plane was the Enola Gay, and it was dropping Little Boy, an atomic bomb, less than two miles from Yamaguchi's location. He witnessed a great flash of light and was blown back. His eardrums were blown out, his eyes temporarily blinded, and the upper left part of his body was severely burned. After recovering, he managed to crawl himself to a shelter where he received care. He spent the night in an air raid shelter and the following day returned to his home in Nagasaki. Just three days later, despite being heavily bandaged, Yamaguchi reported in for work, determined to do his job regardless of any circumstances. He sat across from a supervisor who was more than interested in hearing what Yamaguchi had to say about his near-death experience. Within the midst of the story, again less than two miles away, there was another great explosion. Batman the second atomic bomb had detonated and both he and his boss were thrown from the force of the blast luckily Yamaguchi was unharmed but his bandages were ruined and being unable to find replacement bandages ended up getting an infection which put his life in jeopardy thankfully he survived Yamaguchi was the only official citizen in Japan to survive both atomic bombs and he spent the remainder of his life protesting nuclear weapons despite the events he was never said to harbor any ill will towards America and even went so far as to contact President Obama in regards to banning nuclear weapons. Yamaguchi in 2010 at the age of 93 succumbed to stomach cancer. Thunderstorms can inspire fear in some and excitement in others but for Roy Sullivan it was only dread and for very good reason. Roy took a job as a park ranger in Virginia in 1936. Little did he know the misfortune that awaited him, despite living a fairly normal life before this. He would come to be seen as somewhat of a freak, a walking hazard even. In 1942, while working, a huge thunderstorm rolled in. He took refuge in a fire lookout tower, which was just built and hadn't been given a lightning rod yet. Lightning continuously struck the structure and Roy described the chaos inside claiming that fire was jumping all over the place. He fled the tower and just a few feet outside was struck by a bolt of lightning that seared his leg and burned a hole right through his shoe. Being struck by lightning is a very rare event for an average person. The chances are 1 in 3000. But Roy wasn't so lucky to only be struck one time between In 1942 and 1977, he was struck six more times. The second time in 1969, the lightning bounced off of a tree and fired through the window of his truck, burning off almost all of his hair on his head. The third time in 1970, he was struck in the shoulder while out in his front yard. The fourth time in 1972, he was struck while working and his head caught fire. He had to put it out with a wet towel due to the fact his head wouldn't fit under the faucet in the bathroom. The fifth time, in 1973, he saw a storm cloud approaching, drove away from it as quickly as he could, and once he felt he had outrun it, stepped out of his truck, only to be struck soon after, again scorching his head before traveling through his legs. The next time, in 1976, he attempted again to run from a storm cloud, but was struck anyway. And the final time, in 1977, he was fishing and was struck yet again. A bear approached shortly after to add insult to injury to try to steal the fish off his line. Having had enough, he beat the bear with a tree branch and took back his fish. Roy was a freak of nature and was commonly referred to as a human lightning rod. But he wasn't the only one impacted by the lightning's odd sense of humor. One day, while hanging laundry up on the line outside his home, lightning struck again. But this time, it struck his wife. He managed to get away unharmed. Roy had earned himself a reputation that kept people from conversing with him whatsoever. People felt that if they got too close, they too would be struck by lightning, and truth be told, there were a few close calls. His life unfortunately fell apart, and at the age of 71, Roy took his own life with a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the stomach. Most people find themselves at points in their lives hoping and praying that their luck will change. Well, be very careful what you wish for. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Winning the lottery can be seen as the greatest possible form of luck, but one thing about luck is that often, it can change. Poor and greatly lacking while growing up, Jeffrey Dampier was a man who knew the value of not taking things for granted. While living in Illinois, Jeffrey hit it big when he won the Illinois Lottery in 1996 for a grand total of $20 million. He had been married at the time, but the marriage soon fell apart and the two split the money 50-50, still leaving Jeffrey with more than enough. Jeffrey soon found love again in a woman named Crystal Jackson, who he dated and eventually married. Two years after they were married, the two moved to Tampa Bay, Florida. Once there, Jeffrey used some of his remaining money to invest in a business which sold gourmet popcorn. Being generous, Jeffrey helped Crystal's sisters with their finances while still plentifully giving gifts to numerous other members of the family, specifically one of Crystal's sisters, Victoria Jackson. But Jeffrey was living a bit of a lie. He was having an affair with Victoria, who had a boyfriend at the time named Nathaniel. Despite the fact that he was so generous to them both, going so far as to buy them an apartment, tragedy was still lingering just around the corner for Jeffrey. One day, Victoria called him up and complained about car trouble outside of her apartment, so Jeffrey headed there to help her, only to be taken captive by Victoria and Nathaniel, his hands and feet bound with shoelaces. Apparently wanting to rob Jeffrey of some of his winnings, things turned deadly when Nathaniel handed Victoria a shotgun and told her that if she didn't shoot Jeffrey, he would shoot her. So she did what she thought she had to do. She shot Jeffrey in the back of the head. Victoria Jackson and Nathaniel were both arrested, tried, and found guilty for first-degree murder, armed kidnapping, and armed carjacking, and were sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. A lot of people are displeased when they see those who have won the lottery. Oftentimes, this is because of jealousy, but in this case, displeasure would be rather well placed. Amanda Clayton was only 25 when she won the Michigan State Lottery in 2011. She had won a million dollars, which was more than enough to pull her right out of the government assistance that she had been living with. But there was one small issue. Amanda never told officials that she had won the lottery and knowingly kept collecting food stamps and medical benefits. Amanda was forced to repay the money she had been wrongfully given and receive six to nine months of probation, but this was far from her only issue. Neighbors of Amanda claimed that she very much wanted them dead and would get into a number of disputes with them. They even accused Amanda of using her money to hire people to kill them. Amanda wouldn't see the end of her probation. With her newfound wealth, Amanda easily accessed drugs which she used, even in the presence of her one-and-a-half-year-old child. That child was found beside her when she had overdosed one day and died as a result. It had seemed Amanda's winnings had only acted as more fuel for a deadly and dishonest lifestyle, a life she may have had time to turn around had she never won the lottery at all. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons, over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The Case of Abraham Shakespeare is a particularly sad tale considering how giving and kind-hearted Abraham was. In 2006, Abraham won an incredible $30 million jackpot from the Florida State Lottery. He had spent a great portion of it in just two years freely giving away money to just about anyone who asked. In fact, he gave away money so frequently that he became incredibly stressed out by it and began wishing he had never won the lottery at all. But the worst person Abraham came across was a woman named D.D. Moore, who expressed a heavy interest in writing about Abraham's life story. Abraham willingly accepted D.D. into his life, but it would turn out to be a mistake that would cost him not only his fortune, but his life. Dee Dee ended up swindling Abraham out of pretty much everything he owned. She began a business with Abraham, took control of its funds, and bought herself brand new vehicles. Her own company even purchased Abraham's home, which she said she paid him for, but there was no evidence that Dee Dee actually paid Abraham anything. And then, one day, Abraham disappeared. After he was gone, Dee Dee continued to live in his home and even used his phone to text his friends and loved ones, pretending to be him to reduce suspicion. In January of 2010, Abraham's body was found under a slab of concrete on an acquaintance's property. He had been shot in the chest with a 38 caliber pistol. Dee Dee Moore was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Deborah McDonald didn't win much in comparison to many other lottery winners, but something is better than nothing, but it still seemed to bring only tragedy. Deborah won $5,520 from the Ohio Lottery. Though it wasn't life-changing, she was very pleased and promptly went out to buy wedding rings for her and her husband, rings that they had been previously unable to afford, but both truly wanted. From there, they went out for a celebratory dinner with drinks. They spent a perfect evening together and then took a stroll towards home. But while walking from out of nowhere, a car came and collided with Deborah, killing her the same day that she had collected her earnings. Deborah's husband was left in disbelief and devastated. It wasn't believed that the driver of the car had been drinking and it had truly just been an accident, but that provided little relief for a family torn apart. A million dollar win leads to a horrific death. In 2012, Aruj Khan won a million dollars. The very next day, he was dead. Originally, it was ruled that Arouge had died of natural causes, but due to suspicions by those who knew him, his body was retested, only to reveal that Aruj had been the victim of cyanide poisoning, which had been delivered to him during his last meal, a meal prepared by his wife, Shabana Ansari. And days after the death, Shabana tried cashing the lottery check for herself. This didn't sit well with other members of Eruj's family, specifically his siblings, who believed that Shabana had more to do with the death than she was going to admit. Since his death, Eruj's sister Miraj Khan was granted custody of Eruj's daughter, while she and his brother Imtiaz Khan worked to get police to further consider the suspected involvement of Shabana and her own father, who were both at dinner the night Eruj was poisoned. Though Chicago police consider the case still open, the family has been largely dissatisfied with their levels of effort, complaining that whenever they talk to an investigator, their call is handed off to someone else who finds a way to dismiss them off the phone, while still nothing new develops. Arouge's family is convinced that so far, Arouja's widow and her father have gotten away with murder. And that's not all they would have gotten away with if they truly did murder Arouge. The court awarded them around one-third of Arouge's winnings, with the remaining going to his siblings. It's unknown when, if ever, police will conclude their investigation, and the murderer, or murderers, will be charged. Striving to do good or evil rests in our bones. But sometimes, in the end, karma has a habit of catching up with us. It's one thing to show bravery and strength in the face of war, but it's something entirely different to tempt fate, especially when you and your men are surrounded. General John Sedgwick was leading a troop of men in the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse during the American Civil War. Confederate snipers were surrounding the area, occasionally shooting at Sedgwick's men. As the snipers sent bullets flying at the soldiers below, they would dodge them as quickly as possible. Every time this occurred, General Sedgwick would laugh with arrogance. After one of the men stood up to Sedgwick, telling him that he could have died if he had not dodged the bullet, Sedgwick proclaimed, what? Men dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire along the whole line? I'm ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. The snipers took aim at the Union troops once again, and the soldiers jumped out of the way once again. Sedgwick thought what he had said before was so clever that he decided to repeat it again. He yelled, I'm ashamed of you, dodging that way. They couldn't hit an elephant General John Sedgwick was unable to finish his sentence as a sniper had shot him directly under his left eye, killing him instantly. There's nationalism, and then there's extreme nationalism. There's justice, and then there's karma. And sometimes karma is, thankfully, more eye-opening in positive ways than negative ones. Roughly one-fifth of Hungarians have been shown to hold anti-Semitic views, believing that Jewish people ruin their country. In addition, there are many Hungarian anti-Semites who are also Holocaust deniers. It isn't surprising that these citizens started their own political party called Jobbik, which has grown to be the third largest party in the National Assembly. Chaunad Segdi was a leader of the Jobbik Party and was known throughout Hungary for his radical anti Semitism. Any opportunity he had, Segdi would make his intolerant stance known to his fellow Hungarians. But one day, after speaking to his grandmother, Segdi found out that not only did the Holocaust actually happen, but his grandmother was a survivor of Auschwitz. Moreover, his grandfather had survived forced labor camps. The irony hit him with a crushing weight and changed his life substantially. And soon after the eye-opening experience, Segdi recanted all of his anti-Semitic statements and backed out of the Jobbik party entirely. Today, Segdi embraces his Jewish heritage, has been baptized as an Orthodox Jew, and even visited Auschwitz. Ice hockey is undoubtedly one of the most dangerous sports, and although players are covered in protective padding, they can still receive critical injuries. However, it is all the more painful when fans add insult to injury. Steve Sullivan was a hockey player for the Chicago Blackhawks. He had already been knocked around during the entire game against the Colorado Avalanches, but wasn't prepared to be whacked in the face by an opposing hockey stick. The high stick hit him on the bridge of his nose, causing some serious bleeding. He additionally received 12 stitches post-game. As Sullivan skated over to the bench, he was abruptly stopped by a hysterical fan on the other side of the glass, who was laughing and heckling him about his injury. Sullivan paused to listen, and they both exchanged some strong words, but the fan's insults were relentless. Sullivan headed to bench, got a quick patch-up, and went back on the ice to finish the game. After scoring two goals on the Avalanche's goalie, one player slap-shot the next puck away from the net and everyone watched as it sailed through the air, over the glass, and right into the forehead of the fan who had just jeered Sullivan. Seizing the opportunity, Sullivan skated over to the heckler and proceeded to give him the same treatment that he had received earlier. It was a simple justice that made Steve Sullivan's night, and the fan ended up receiving a few more stitches than Sullivan did. We come across signs in our lives that we should heed, both metaphorical and literal. Sometimes these signs are there to save us a little bit of grief, or even our very own lives. Tyler Myers decided to join the game of stealing stop signs around his hometown of Norwalk, Ohio. He intended to sell these stolen stop signs, and also keep some for himself, and had no concern for the possible dangers that removing these signs would pose to others. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do. But Tyler would later have to deal with the consequences of disregarding the importance of these stop signs. Driving down Medusa Road in his red F-150 pickup, Tyler breezed through a stop sign and was immediately struck by a semi-truck. The two vehicles were slammed together and flew off the road, coming to rest in a vacant field. The driver of the tractor trailer was medevaced to a hospital in Toledo with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. However, Tyler was not wearing a seatbelt and was killed as a result of the crash taking the burden on for everyone else that he had put in jeopardy by stealing the stop signs. Brenda Sue Schaefer had gotten herself into a relationship with a man named Mel Ignatow, but after reluctantly accepting his proposal, Mel's true personality began to show. Starting out as a kind and affectionate boyfriend, he gradually turned into an abusive monster leading up to their engagement. Mel would demand sex from Brenda, constantly complaining that she never fulfilled his every sexual need. Brenda, with encouragement from her family, was planning to leave Mel, but Mel knew what she was planning. So he started making strategies of his own with his ex-girlfriend. He convinced Brenda to stop by a friend's house, but as soon as she walked in the door, she was sedated with chloroform and tied to a glass table. For the next few hours, she would be torturously assaulted. While this occurred, Mel's ex-girlfriend, Mary Ann Shore, took photographs and occasionally participated. After the merciless torment, Mel suffocated Brenda and neatly packed her body away in an old suitcase which was later buried in the woods. Mel and Mary Ann would later go on trial. However, Mel would walk free until the photographs were later discovered. Unfortunately, he was never able to be tried for the murder a second time due to the laws of double jeopardy, and he therefore walked free again. But karma wouldn't let him get away with the torture and murder of Brenda Sue Schaefer that easily. In 2008, Mel Ignatow tripped and fell as he was walking past his glass table and cut himself severely on a broken shard. He remained alive for some time as he bled out. Panicked, he stumbled around his home before eventually collapsing near his bedroom. Mel was found dead in that spot. In a twist of fate, it happened to be the same glass table that Mel had tied Brenda to before she was brutally murdered. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says Support the Show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.